I know some of y'all here. It's great to see Betty in the back there. Now, I've known Betty for a long time. And one time, Betty's from Uganda. And one time, I was in Uganda preaching. And it was one of the, I don't know how I got the opportunity, but there must have been 50 or 60,000 people there out in this big open field. And so I'm preaching out, looking out in the field. And then there's several hundred people sitting in bleachers, it looks like, behind. I get finished preaching and I'm leaving. And I hear somebody say, Pastor Al, Pastor Al. I turn around, it was Betty. <laughs> you were back home. And we took tea the next day at your house, as I recall. So I, st- I love that story. It's great to see you. And it is, a, it is an honor and a privilege to be here this afternoon uh, to preach at this service. I've known Mark since 1989. That's when I went with PEF and then you were at the meeting and then I think you came in the next year. So I want to speak to you from Titus chapter 3. And uh, we're actually going to start at verse 1. I don't, uh, by mistake, I don't think I added verses, the first couple of verses there. But just to set the stage here, earlier today, I'd heard about this uh, documentary entitled The Streets of Philadelphia. And so I looked at this uh, documentary today. It's about 20 minutes long. And it's about Kensington Avenue. Where's Kensington Avenue? It's in Philly, right? Somewhere? Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. So... All it was, was a guy driving through the Kensington area, looking at all the homeless people and and so forth. And I understand that this could be many other places, not just in Philadelphia, it could be many places anywhere, in my city of Birmingham, Alabama. But what struck me about it was the the vast number of the homeless, some 5,000. And then it talked about them being on a drug I'd never heard of, xylazine. And it's apparently um, a painkiller used with horses and farm animals and so forth. And what it does is it kind of puts people in a stupor. And then that's, that's really big right now. And then they talked about fentanyl and all this sort of thing. And as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking... Humanly speaking, this is impossible. Utterly impossible. The guy says, well, you know, there's a number of reasons for their being addicted to drugs and so forth. He gives us reasons. But we know that at the bottom of it all, it's sin. Not just their sin. Sometimes they've been put into bad situations. A lot of them were assaulted by their parents and so forth. So, But that's the condition. And I'm watching this video and my heart's going out to these people. And I know that Mark and this group, and probably most everybody here, is really concerned about this sort of thing. You really want to reach these people. So what can I say to give you encouragement based on the Word of God? Not not some cheerleading thing I might do, but based on the Word of God, what can I say? And so I thought about the book of Titus. This is a fascinating book to me. I've been spending a lot of time, I've memorized it, I meditate on it just about every day now. It's a fascinating book. You might know that nowhere in the book of Acts is this particular place of Crete mentioned, except 
in Acts chapter 2, there were Christians present at Pentecost. But other than that, it's not like Paul or Peter made some missionary journey to the island of Crete and established churches there. There's nothing about that there. But you come to the book of Titus in chapter 1, and Paul is telling Titus to remain there and to appoint elders in every city. So and obviously, God's doing some kind of great work there. When did it happen? Well, when we start putting everything together, we begin to realize that Paul began his ministry about 48 A.D., and he ministered for about 10 years, which is uh, in his church planting ministry that's recorded in the book of Acts, which is pretty amazing because in 10 years, Paul was able to make church planting movements on four different Roman provinces in Galatia, in Macedonia, in Achaia, and Asia Minor. So he's at it for 10 years till about 58 AD, and then he is arrested. And as I like to say, he's in legal trouble for the next eight or 10 years. And then he is, has his head cut off by Nero. So what was Crete like? How did he get there? Well, according to 2 Timothy, he says, no one supported me at my first defense, all deserted me. Most scholars now believe that there were two imprisonments by Paul. I certainly believe that, seems to say. So he's in Rome for a period of time. Then he's released. And while he's released, that's apparently when he went to Crete with Titus and perhaps others and planted these churches. Now, what was Crete like? Crete was part of the Roman Empire. It had a strong Greek influence. And it was... It, it was the head of the Minoan dynasty some 2,500 years B.C. It at one point had been a pretty sophisticated place, but it had been overrun by, overrun by Greek mythology and that sort of thing. So these people were pretty pagan, godless people. And then you read this amazing thing in Titus 1. You'll notice uh, you go down to Titus 1, and um, he says, Verse 11, uh, excuse me, verse 12, he says, um, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said Christians are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. One of their prophets of their own. Now, most people believe that prophet was Epimenides. Now, he was not a real prophet according to biblical standards. He was more of a seer, sort of a mystic type guy. And we're not exactly sure why he said that. Some say they were just absolutely notorious for lying and so forth. Others say, no, it's more tied to Greek mythology. But anyway, the word on the street, as it were, throughout that part of the world is, ah, oh, the Christians are all liars. They're all evil beasts. They're all lazy gluttons. In fact, at that particular time, this is an... Uh, uh, um, an English word, a derivative of it, but they would say something like, oh, you people are being Christianized again. And you've been lied to, man. Don't listen to those people. So they had this horrible reputation, Paul says, and this testimony is true. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, there's no doubt, about it. No, no doubt about it. These people are liars. They're evil beasts. Now, 
some people think that the evil beast he's referring to is going back to the Greek uh, mythological Minotaur, you know, who has a, a, um, a bull for a head and a tail and then a human body. And the Minotaur supposedly, the Minotaur was one who made this labyrinth and then the labyrinth, they seduce young little boys and girls into the labyrinth. And you can kind of think about what went on there. That's the idea. Evil beasts, perverted, godless people. So the Christians are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's the word that they are. They're like. Then you come to chapter 2. Verse 11, and there's this amazing declaration of Christ's incarnation. I know you know it well. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Six times in the book of Titus, it refers to God the Father or God the Son as our Savior. We know of at least two instances in the Greek culture where they referred to Zeus and another one of their gods as their savior. So it's like the apostle Paul knows all that. And Paul's saying, in your face with this pagan religion, Jesus is the savior. And again, sometimes it refers to a God, the savior, like in 1 Timothy 1. But here's a great passage about the grace of God coming. And it's in that context that we come down after he's put that forth and he's reminded these people, those lazy gluttons, liars, and evil beasts, many of them, Titus, have now been converted. Many of them are now walking with Christ. Think about again, the people on the streets of Philadelphia or even the nice moral people in your neighborhood. Think about those folks. And they're lost and they have no hope they are without God in this world. We read that early in Ephesians chapter 2. No hope at all. And yet God has visited some of these people and he's taken them from darkness. He's put them into light. He's put a new song in their hearts, a song of praise to our God. And they now realize they are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that they should walk in them. So it's in that context that we come down to chapter 3. Now, again, read as I read this, I want you to think of the fact these people were far from God. Way, way far away from God. These were not churchgoers. At the best, they were involved with Greek mythology and the false gods of, of, of the Greeks. At best. And remember the, the, the context. Oh, they're all evil beasts, liars, and lazy gluttons. So, some of these have been saved. So now, here's what he says to Titus. This is, what, this is what Paul wants Titus to get across to these people. Remind them to be subject to rulers. 
to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. He goes on to say, tell them not to malign anybody. Tell them to be peaceful, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. This had to be revolutionary to these people. That's not the way they lived at all. They had no moral compass whatsoever. So, Paul's having to tell Titus, they don't know anything at all about the way they ought to live because they didn't grow up in Judaism. It's Judaism had the law. They don't have that. They don't know anything. They don't have a context for how you're supposed to live as a Christian. So, Paul is saying, let's get real simple. Let's get real basic. Let's get real Remind them they've got to be subject to people who roll over them. They're to, they're to respect the rulers. They're to be obedient. They're to be ready for every good deed. They should always be looking around how they can help somebody. And by the way, tell them never to malign anybody. Always to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for everybody. Not just the people they like, everybody. And then I love how Paul so often brings it back in a doxological way about his own salvation. He can never get away from it. He says, you know, verse 3, for he also once were foolish ourselves. Yeah, yeah. How about you? Remember when you were foolish? The stuff I used to believe. foolish i remember about three months before i was converted it was during my sophomore year the university of alabama i was really into drinking and getting into a lot of trouble and i remember a buddy and i buddy said hey let's go fishing in the morning i said okay i'll be ready at five o'clock he shows up at 11 o'clock at night let's go so we go it's stupid you know <laughs> we go sleep in a car it's cold and out at Birmingham, it was, it must have been 30, 35 degrees. There we are out on the boat, no life jacket. And he starts rocking the boat back and forth, laughing his head off. Listen, if I fall overboard, I'm going straight to the bottom. I got a heavy coat on with no life jacket. And by the way, if that had happened then to me, I would have gone straight to hell. I wasn't a Christian. That's what you call being foolish. We also once ourselves were foolish. How about you? Were you disobedient? I was. Deceived. I was deceived. I never gave it a thought. That's what Paul is saying here. Remember, Paul was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees as to the law of a Pharisee, as the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness through the law found blameless. But he was deceived. He was blind. That's how you were. That's how I was. That's how the people out here on Kensington Avenue and all over Philadelphia and all over where I live in Birmingham, Alabama. That's how these lost people are. Deceived, disobedient, foolish. He goes on to say, not only that, they were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, sex, 
pornography, drugs, alcohol, gangbanging, cheating people in business, ripping people off, whatever it is. They were engaged in all these sorts of things and they were enslaved to them. I bet from time to time, some of these people say, oh, you know what? It's New Year's. I think I'll turn over a new leaf. I think I'll get off my drugs tomorrow, January 1. It lasts to 3 o'clock on January 1. They're back at it, right? I mean, that's the way it is. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. That's how you were. That's how I was. Then he goes on saying, spending our life in malice and envy. The Greek word for malice is a word that's used in that particular time. Think of it like this. A farmer has a great crop out in the field. It's harvest time. And just before the harvest time comes, a hailstorm comes down and cuts everything down and everything rots in the field. And it's malicious. In other words, it is good for nothing. It's all wasted. And he says, we spend our life in wasteful, arrogant, despicable things. And besides that, we were envious. We were envious of what other people had. We wanted what they had. You think about all the people in our world today who are driven by envy, hate. And then he goes on to say, he says, we were hateful, filled with hate for other people and hating one another. That's the situation. He said, now I want you to remind them to, to be submissive, to be ready for every good deed. But we also remember what we were like. And then, then he does this. This is amazing. He says, but, and there's that great adversative, right? Like in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were you're under the wrath of God and so forth. But God being rich in mercy. Here it is again. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared. By the way, I love how the New English, uh, New King James Version does it. They do it right. New American Standard doesn't quite tr- translate this right. The New American Standard has it. When the kindness of God our saving his love for mankind appeared. He saved us. That's not what it says in the text. It says, when the love of God, uh, God our Savior's love for mankind appeared, not based on the deeds of righteousness which we've done in the flesh, but he saved us. In other words, the word he saved us is saved for the last part of the sentence for the sake of infamous. In the Greek, you can put words wherever you want them for the sake of emphasis. And that's what he's doing here. It's very, very powerful. Think, just look at this for a second. But when the kindness of God, our God is kind. Just think, like, let that one sink in for me. He's kind. Kind means he loves to give. When the kindness of God, our Savior, there's that word Savior. For, speaking of God, the Father is our Savior. And his love. You know, sometimes I think people from a more of a reformed tradition, they kind of pass over this idea of love because they think it's too ooey-gooey or something. Listen. God loves His people. In fact, God has loved you if you're in Christ. 
God has loved you as long as he's existed. Romans 8 says he foreknew us. How long has God existed? Forever. Think about that. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, not based on the deeds which we have done in righteousness, He saved us. Now you know all this. You know this very, very well. But let us sink in for a moment and think about how liberating this can be to people on the street or people in your neighborhood. They're enslaved. They're in bondage. They can't break it. But if God intervenes in their lives, everything will change. Now, why does he do that? And how does he do it? He does it by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Washing of regeneration means this. It's not by baptism. It's not by some religious ritual. It's not by joining the church. This washing is by regeneration. This is what the Bible calls being born again, right? Jesus says you must be born again. The Apostle Peter says born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. <coughs> and he says it here as well. And regeneration simply means this, that you were born with a corrupt, wicked heart. Psalm 58 says that you're, the wicked are strange from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. That's the way it was with all of us. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the skillful caster of spells. Now, just as a sidelight, I remember a couple of years ago, I was following John Barber. He was going to India. And he put on Facebook this picture of you with the snake charmer. You remember that one? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm deathly afraid of snakes. I, 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 I shouldn't say I have a phobia, but I got one. That's it. There's a picture of John sitting down with a snake charmer. And the snake charmer puts a cobra around his neck. Now, I'm guessing, John, that the cobra was defanged. Was he? Sort of. <laughs> There's no way I would have done that. No way. And I tell people all the time, I go to India and Africa, and there's cobras everywhere. And you get bit by one. If you don't have the antidote, you're dead in 30 minutes. Am I right, Betty? You got them in Uganda. I would, when we're going door to door evangelism in Uganda, I'd say to somebody, have you seen a cobra recently? Yes, I saw one yesterday. I said, what did you do? They look at me. I killed her. What else are you supposed to do? They beat her with a broom or whatever. So, but the point is, is that that's the way we were. Every person in this world is born with that rebellious heart that loves sin and hates God. And, and until God takes out that cobra heart and gives the heart of Jesus, nothing's going to change. Listen, you can have your children baptized, catechized, homeschooled, Christian schools, hearing 200 sermons in a year, whatever, for 20 years. But until they're born again, nothing works. At the best, they're outwardly religious and moral. God's got to do the work. And that's what we're talking about here. And here's the glorious thing. These, these dear people out in Kensington Avenue or in your neighborhood, and they're, and they're lost. And, they, and not only are they 
involved in poverty and all the other stuff, when they die, they're going to hell. They don't know Jesus. And yet, God can save them. And only He can save Nobody else can do it. We've got to remember that. I know you know that. When the kindness of God and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So that regeneration is a miraculous work of God changing the heart and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That means we grow in grace. We're sanctified. We're growing the grace and knowledge of Jesus. The longer we're in the faith, there is a progressive sanctification. There's a positional sanctification. Remember, we're born again. We're set aside. But the real Christian grows. Why? Because he has the Holy Spirit indwelling him. The renewing through the Holy Spirit who was poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And why is that? Well, he tells us, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And he goes on, finally, just to kind of wrap it up. If you drop down to verse 13 of chapter 3, Paul's getting real practical again here at the end. He says, when I send Artemis and Tychius to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. Now, where's Nicopolis? Nicopolis was on the west coast of Greece. Nicopolis means victory city. You know how, you know how uh, the sports shoe company Nike? That's a Greek word, which means victory. And so this word Nike, uh, Nico, or polis means city. The city of victory is referring back to Caesar Augustus, when he defeated Mark Antony at Actium in 31 BC, he made this city Nicopolis. And Paul, here's the amazing thing. So Paul was 10 years ministering, and then he spent 10 years in jail. He gets out of jail. You know, look, if, if I've been beaten up yet as many times as Paul got beat up, like five times with 39 lashes, beaten with rods and all of that, he tells us, if that's happened to me, and in, in uh, Lystra I was beat up and left for death, stoned and left for dead, I think I might say, you know what? I think I'll cash my chips in right now. I think I'll, I think I'll retire. I think I've had enough. So what he did, the man was relentless. So he's going to Crete, and now he's at Nicopolis. Meet me at Nicopolis. I decided to spend the winter there. And then he's continued to give directions. He says, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. And then check this out. Our people, our people, you know, these, these people who were evil beasts, liars and lazy gluttons, you know, who now been born again. You know, these are these are our people. These are our brothers and sisters. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds. They didn't, they didn't know about good deeds. They were way away from God. They must learn to engage in good, in good deeds to meet pressing needs 
so that they will not be unfruitful. Paul's all about bearing fruit. He's all about extending the kingdom of God to the very end of his life. That's why he could say, the love of Christ controls me. Therefore, having concluded this, that one man died for all, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Let me close with this. I just, I just love this. This comes from um, what Paul is saying to Timothy. I know you know this. But it just brings it right home. Paul says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. For I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, but I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. What's he mean here? He says it's a trustworthy statement about four or five times in his pastoral epistles, he uses that term. So you have to listen. It's a trustworthy statement. In other words, what I'm getting ready to tell you is the truth. Mark it down. Take it to the bank. It's the truth. Uh-oh. We should have a. We should do this another way because I my, my hands start moving everywhere. It's a trustworthy statement. Mark it down. It's the truth. And because it's a trustworthy statement, it deserves full acceptance. Listen to it and do it. He says that Christ saved him who is the foremost of sinners. Now, I don't know about you, but I tell people all the time, I am the foremost sinner in my family. My wife sins. My grown children sin, my daughter-in-law sin, my grandchildren sin, but as the leader of the family, I'm the chief of sinners. Amen. And you know, we should hold that view. What you see in Paul is this awareness that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Now you know that, but I want you to think about it in the context of your neighborhood. In the context of your community, of Kensington Avenue, or wherever you live, Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners, came to save sinners. He didn't come for political reasons. He didn't come preaching morality. He came preaching Himself. He came preaching His death and His resurrection, offering hope to anyone and everyone who would repent and come to Him and God would save them. That's what we're all about. And Mark, as an evangelist, being ordained as an evangelist, that's what you're to do. Now you know that and you've been doing it for 40 years. We need Mark Grosso's all over Philadelphia. We need, and a lot of you guys are doing that. I know a lot of you are doing it. We need Mark Grosso's and John Barber's and people like that all over this country. Without it, I don't, I don't see any hope at all. Can you believe how far gone and how quickly we've gone down in the last 10 years? It's shocking. It's shocking. And yet, there's always hope. There's always hope. Persevere. Don't grow weary in well-doing. You will reap if you sow bountifully. 
and if you don't faint. But we look to Jesus because he is the only Savior of sinners. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And because God has saved you, you're under obligation. We're all under obligation. That's why Paul was able to say, this is my closing, that's why Paul was able to say, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Why is he eager? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because he knows it's the power of God unto salvation. Are you regularly finding ways to proclaim Jesus? You don't necessarily have to be a street evangelist. But are you looking for ways to speak to your neighbors, to give them a gospel tract, to give them a cup of water in the name of Jesus, so to speak, to help them? Are you willing to love God, to love people, and make disciples of the nations? Everybody can do this. Everybody must do this in some way or another. Are you being faithful? I'm not always faithful. I'll be the first to admit that. I have to repent all the time. Jesus came to save sinners. Let's be committed to that work. We're thankful, Mark, for you and what you do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would use it in uh, all our lives and that we would um, repent where we need to repent. Lord, we do think of these dear people in Kensington Avenue and so many other places. Our hearts go out to them. Well, or we could say, well, they got it. They had it coming to them. Well, maybe that's so, but that doesn't make it easier. We, we should have been in the same place. And if it wasn't for your grace, that's exactly where we'd be too. So Lord, give us a compassion. Give us a burden for souls. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy to us. And we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for coming to this special service. I've known Mark since 1997. He's been an elder since uh, beyond that time and uh, been engaged in evangelistic ministry. But uh, we thought it good to reaffirm the vows of an elder and a special vow that Vanguard has for an evangelist. Um, I'm here as a teaching elder, evangelist, and Mark will be a ruling elder, evangelist. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> they took my voice away. Um, John, if you could come and go ahead and say a few words, and then... Um, We'll give the vows to Mark and ask him to refer, affirm them. This is Dr. John Barbara, by the way.
It's a great pleasure to be here. I've come up from Jacksonville, Florida, to uh, participate in this uh, ordination here today. It's important to me historically because it was 1989. I got a phone call from uh, the headquarters of Presbyterian Evangelist Fellowship, now REF, to go to Philadelphia. There was a young ruling elder there, or a young man about to be one, who was a part of a church plant in South Philadelphia, along with his wife, and uh, they needed help. They had a pastor, and they were looking for some ways to reach their community, and so I showed up, pretty young guy at the time, and um, Mark and I walked out onto Broad, South Broad, and I will never forget that day, and I don't think Mark will either. I don't think uh, you were really interested in going into ministry at the time. Uh, you were working for the telephone company, if I remember correctly, and uh, I've never seen this before. I don't know how many people it was. Every single person that I presented the gospel to as we were walking down broad gave every indication of receiving Christ right on the spot. And I think that God was doing a special work that day. He does a lot of special works, but in that particular case, to get Mark and Karen's attention on not only what can happen to help a local church in South Philadelphia, but to call them into the ministry. Rarely have I ever seen anything like that in my lifetime. And I've been doing evangelism for a long time. So... It's a pleasure now to be in a context where we can finally, officially, see this man called to something that he's been doing for 33 years and been doing effectively. And praise God for that. Thank you. Um, one of the reasons Mark felt it would be good to pursue ordination as an evangelist so that he had the authority to take up public preaching of the Word of God on 69th Street. It's not like Kensington Avenue, but it's a hard place. We were out yesterday and the black Hebrew Israelites had taken over our plaza that we're normally at. And that just goes to show that thousands of people pass by every day and do not know Christ as their Savior. They want to keep the law. They want to be moralistic. They don't want to hear the good news. But besides doing literature and one-on-one -on -one conversation, Mark has taken up the task of preaching on the street. And so we want to officially lay hands on him and ordain him. Uh, Brother Al, could you come here, please? I lost 
my voice, dude. Vocal cord surgeries. Could you ask the vows? And then the next paper clip back is the vow for the evangelist. It's back in it. Mark, do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God, the only infallible and, and inerrant rule of faith and practice? I do. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of these fundamentals of the system of doctrine, you will, on your own initiative, make known to your session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow. I do affirm them, and I uh, would do so if I had a change of heart. Do you approve of the form of government and discipline of the Vanguard Presbyterian Church as being that which confirms or conforms to the general principles of biblical polity? I do. You accept the office of ruling elder, evangelist. evangelist in this church, and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof, and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life, and to set a worthy example before the church of which God has made you an officer. Yes. You promise to sub, uh, subjection to your brethren in the Lord. Yes. Do you promise to study the peace and unity and edification and purity of the church? I do. There's a vow for the congregation, too. Are those for our members here, right? Yes. Okay, if you're a member here at this church, after I uh, uh, make this statement, please raise your hand if you agree. Do you, members of this church, acknowledge and receive Mark as an evangelist? And do you promise to yield him all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which his office, according to the word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles him? If so, please raise your hand. And then finally, Mark, do you undertake the office of an evangelist? And do you promise in reliance on God for strength to be faithful in this discharge of all the duties incumbent on you as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do. Thank you. Uh, perhaps, could Mark perhaps sit there? And uh, go ahead, brother. Okay. We're going to proceed to lay hands on Brother Mark. If you are a pastor, an elder, or an evangelist, please feel free to come and lay hands on this brother. You can come as a deacon. And uh, And uh, I'm going to open in prayer. Any brother that wants to pray can do so. And uh, William, I'm going to ask if you would close us. Father, thank you for your great mercy 
and kindness. You chose us in Christ. You regenerated us, including this brother. And you have called it to service as an elder, as an evangelist. Give him the ability to teach and preach the word in season and out of season. To shepherd the flock and to do the work of an evangelist. To the glory of God, the honor of Christ. Fill him with your spirit. And may his ministry be fruitful in this place. Amen. Amen. Father, the Spirit of light the labor of the Lord, as you told Jeremiah, I knew you when you were in your mother's womb. Lord, this has all been ordained. You're letting the world know today. You've been called out, set aside for the work of an evangelist. It's already been done. Lord, I know you're going to bless him from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. Bless him as he continues to do the work of evangelism. Make full proof of his ministry and preach the word. Preach the word. In season, out of season. When you don't want to, but let him preach the word that Jesus saves and saves to the other people. In Jesus' name I do pray. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Father, in the power of we praise you for your holiness. Amen. And we ask that you give Mark the same boldness mm -hmm. as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego right. in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. They walked out of the fiery furnace unblemished because we know that there was a fourth person standing there, the angel of the Lord. And we ask for your blessing, not only the boldness, but your righteousness, and to keep him holy through the power of the gospel, the power of God, Jesus Christ. And we just thank you praise you for your work, but you are still working in all of us. And we just thank you for this day, Lord. We pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, I thank you too for Mark, and I ask that you would continue to provide for him and his family as you have for these many years. And Lord, that you protect them from the evil one, from um, the world, from the flesh, from all those enemies that uh, Mark has because he's preaching the gospel. We pray that he be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, always knowing that his labor of the Lord is never in vain, that he would sow uh, the seed of the gospel and that he will reap in due time, and we know the word never returns empty. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it was set. We're thankful for that. We pray that he would continue to glorify you in exalting Jesus. And we do pray, Father, for conversions. Lots of them, Lord, that would transform this city. In Jesus' name. Amen. We echo these prayers. And my heart goes out to Mark Spurgeon for his sister. And I pray for her salvation. I pray for all our siblings who don't know you. Lord, what is it going to take other than us just getting out of the way? Confessing our sins and acknowledging our sins. Please have mercy on our families, our parents, our cousins, our aunts and uncles, our children, our grandchildren. Lord, when, how long? Have mercy on us. We pray, Lord, for your anointing on Mark and Karen. We pray for your power, your strength, your encouragement to be there to do good work, and you will see it on this day of resurrection. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your calling upon Mark's life. We thank you, Lord, for his faithfulness over the years of soul winning. Now, Lord, in his public recognition, may you, O God, increase his effectiveness. May you, O Lord, increase his passion for soul winning. And Father, we thank you for the years ahead. We pray for the we thank you in advance for the many, 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 many souls that will be born in this kingdom as a result of, of this calling. And we thank you for all those who are working alongside him, uh, including his dear wife. Bless them, Lord. Make their wife more effective. And it will be all for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, brothers. <clears throat>